right, good morning. All right, hey, before I start with my message, I just wanted to um, expound on something real quick. So I got this word from the Lord the other day when I was, I was just being alone with him. And um, yeah, so he brought back to mind for me something that was speaking to my heart, but I think it's also for, honestly, like the bride, like the big C church, like, you know, the bride. But that obviously pertains to us too as like a local expression of that, you know. Um, and as I was sitting with him, I was praying and just being with him. He brought back to mind this picture that I had seen just the day before on social media. And it, it, was, uh, it was a friend and his wife who are expecting a child really soon. Um, it was a picture of this cradle, this crib that the husband had built. He's, he, you know, he makes things with wood. And he's really, he actually, he made the tables that are in the, the cafeteria. Um, he's really good at what he does. But anyway, they just posted pictures. The room was all ready, you know, for this baby to arrive. It was perfectly set up. And this crib was in there, and it was really nice. And uh, they had a few different pictures of the angles of it. And then the one picture in particular zoomed in on this part where he had carved into the wood, handcrafted by his name. Um, and the Lord brought this back to my mind, uh, to my heart, as I was just being with him. And he was like, he spoke a few things to me. The first was that there's something in this crib that speaks to, like, me and us, um, you know, that we've been handcrafted by the Lord, you know, that there's something special and unique and love in that, right? That this had been, we have been beautifully and wonderfully made in his image, right, as the word says. Um, and so he spoke that, and he said, like, you've been wonderfully and beautifully handcrafted and made, and I've stamped my approval on you. You know, because that's what this person had done. He was so proud of this crib that he wanted to inscribe his name into it, right? Um, and that's what the Lord has done in us, right? He's created us in his image, and he stamped his approval on us. Um, and so I was just reflecting on that and receiving his love. And then he, he spoke again, and, and he, was, he was like, there's also something to the, to the shape or what this cradle is for, right? Um, and so, like, this, this husband and wife had prepared this room. They had all the colors right, and it was perfectly decorated. And, you know, there was, like, a cool, not, uh, not lame baby theme going on, you know. And the crib was all made. The bed was made. And what was all this for? They did all this to prepare for the arrival of their baby, right? That the baby was going to rest in this cradle, and they wanted it to be as perfect and ready as they could, because this baby was going to come and rest in it. And this is what the Lord spoke to me. He said, this is us as his bride, that he has prepared us and made us almost as this crib, this place, this resting place for him to come and to dwell. So he's created us in his image, and he stamped his approval on us as his own. That's you, that's me. And we've been created as this resting place for the Lord to come. Um. Yeah, isn't that really awesome? And there's just something in his nature that, you know, we've been talking a little bit. I think we're going to talk more in the future about the fact that we are priests in this royal priesthood. Right before Jesus, there were certain people assigned as priests to do certain tasks, one of them being to minister the Lord in the temple, right? The high priest was the only one who could go into the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant, where God's presence dwelled, right? 
He's the only one who could go in and offer sacrifices at the time that the temple was in place. But through Jesus, we have been now all made part of this royal priesthood, right? We are now that priesthood. And part of our call and commission as priests is to minister to his heart. But there's something in his nature that's like when we lift up our praise, when we, as Gwen led us in this morning, as we say the name of Jesus, sing the name of Jesus, Yeshua, which, by the way, is just his name in the original language. When we lift up his name, there's something in his nature. He can't help but come near to that, right? Like the word says um, that he says this, he's enthroned on our praises. It's like our praises create this seat that the Lord can't help but come and fill because he loves you so much. He loves us so much. He loves the praises that we offer so much, not because they sound good or because we said the right thing, but because there's something from our hearts coming out that he is so drawn to, right? And so there is something in this picture for us that as we move into this next season, and like Steve said the other day and the Vision Sunday, Jesus is the vision, right? Like it's no secret. We're after him, right? And there's something in him that as we lift our praises and as we go deeper in our expression of praise, that he can't help but come and fill that cradle, right? It's like our hearts create this space for him, and he cannot help but come and dwell in it, to rest on it. And that's what we want to be as the people of God, as the bride. We want want him to come and rest upon us. We want his glory to descend upon us, amen? So just receive that this morning. You've been handcrafted in his image. He has stamped his approval on us as his deeply beloved bride. And he has made us as this resting place for him to come. And the more we become a people who are obsessed with him and obsessed with glorifying his name, the more we're going to see his glory come, the more we're going to experience him. Right? Steve and I were just in in Texas the other week in a ministry, um, and, and part of their calling has been to create this, this morning through evening, nonstop um, room that's just dedicated to prayer and worship. And why? It's because they want to create as much as they can. They want this place for the Lord to just come and dwell and just set up camp. <laughs> you know, because morning, noon, and night in this place, praises are being lifted up. The Lord can't help but come near to that, right? So as we go deeper in him and, and just become obsessed with him, he comes near. And like I mentioned earlier, that's where all the other stuff comes from, right? When his glory comes. Like Moses experienced the glory of God, right? Like, uh, actually, I'm going to mention the sermon today, but I'll get ahead of it a little bit. You know, when uh, he was leading the Israelites, the Lord had said, like, I'll, Moses asked for the Lord to bring his presence, to let his presence go with them where they were going. So it would bless where they're going, right? And the Lord says, okay, I'll come with you. But then Moses goes a step further and says, show me your glory. Like, he wanted to see the Lord for who he was, right? Like the fullness of the Lord. Um, I totally just lost my train of thought. Dang it, I hate that. Um, (laughs) um, Okay, so the Lord comes, and he won't show him his face because Moses would die if he says, if you see my face, that's how legit the Lord is. If you saw the fullness of his face, you would drop dead. Um, Anyhow, he does pass before him, and he allows him to see him, even the backside of him. It's so powerful that Moses comes down off the mountain, and his face is glowing. For weeks, he had to wear a veil Because his face was glowing. So when the glory of God comes, even the backside of the Lord was enough glory for Moses' face to shine for weeks. 
So if we experience the glory, even a sliver of the glory of God, imagine what it's going to do out there. Your face shining and glowing. I mean, that is where mission comes to life, man. People can't resist the glory of God. They can resist your your fancy church ideas. They can resist your religion. They can't resist the glory of God. And if we want more of the nations to come and have a seat at this table, if we want more of the marginalized and the forgotten and the poor to come and have a seat at this honored table, then we've got to see his glory. We've got to see his glory. But I do believe the Lord's going to pour it out on us, so it's good. Okay, all right, getting into our message for this morning. Um, We are continuing in our series on the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. They believe this is sermon number four. And uh, just to give a a short recap, in case you haven't been with us or in case you forgot, which is okay, um, I'm just going to catch us up to where we're at in the story. So these two books uh, initially were actually all written as one story, and at some point they were broken into two books. So Um, We started in the book of Ezra this morning. We are now moving into the book of Nehemiah, uh, two books in the Bible, but just consider them all one story because they are. Really, this is the story of the Israelites who at one point uh, were living in their own land, and then they were taken captive into exile into the empire of Babylon. And this is the story of the Lord allowing his people to return to their land Um, as had been prophesied before that. And so we've seen that in a couple of stages in this story. We we saw uh, Zerubbabel, which is a funny name, Zerubbabel. Um, He leads the people in the rebuilding of the temple. So they return to the land, and they want to restore this temple that had been built prior. So before the temple, there was nothing, speaking of God's presence, there there was just this ark that God's presence dwelled in, right? And they would carry it in the tabernacle and they'd tear it from place to place. Well, eventually, David desired with all his heart to create a resting place for the Lord to come and just be, right? For the ark to just rest. So they, they built this temple. The glory of God fills it. There's great celebration. Well, they come back to their land and Zerubbabel wants the people to rebuild this temple, right? So they rebuild it. And then we saw after that, that Ezra begins to reteach the Torah, the law. He begins to reintroduce the people to the ways of following God. And um, then he finds out, this was last week Mary was sharing, he finds out that all the people had gone and married people that were from, like, not from their people, right? Not from their clan. Um, and there was some, like, messy stuff in there, right? Because Ezra, his answer to this is, this is wrong, um, which according to the law, there were certain regulations about what they were supposed to do and and who they were supposed to marry. But like Mary had specified for us, the heart in that um, was that there would be no other gods before me, right? There was a concern about turning our face to another god, right? Anyhow, they end up marrying people from different places around the land they're living in. And Ezra's answer is to have them divorce those Uh, women, have them even like send their children away. And there's a messiness in that, right? Because the Lord never commanded that. That was Ezra's attempt at achieving holiness in the middle of a really messy situation, right? Um, But so where we're picking the story up is the people are living in the land, the temple has been rebuilt, and the law has been reintroduced, although there has been some some difficulty in like really resurrecting uh, true revival, like this, this heart and this love for the Lord, right? Well, we're picking up the story with a character named Nehemiah. 
And Nehemiah, at this time, where the story picks up, he is still in Babylon, and he's an Israelite official serving in the, the Persian government. So he's serving the king in Persia. Um, and so this was sometime after the exile had happened, right? And you can imagine he got taken into exile. He doesn't really get to talk to anyone from that land. So he really doesn't know what's going on there, right? He's just serving in the Persian government, probably really not happy about it, but he's doing it, right? Well, anyway, he gets to hear from a couple of friends who come, and they let him know that people have come back, like people have come back to Israel, like the Lord has allowed his people to start coming back, and they've rebuilt the temple, and then they're reintroducing the law. Um, but he asks about the walls, and he finds out that all the walls around the city like, had been burned down. So you can imagine he got taken into exile and didn't really know what happened to the city itself, but essentially it had been burned down. All the walls and all the gates that surrounded this once mighty and proud city were burned down. So Nehemiah finds out that the walls and the gates are burned to the ground, and he is struck with his deep grief. Deep grief. And in his grief, he cries out to the Lord to ask him for favor to go back and rebuild these walls in this city. And so the Lord, in his graciousness, he answers his request and allows him to go. And not only does he do that, but as happened with Zerubbabel and Ezra, he's given favor with the king there. And the king not only allows him to go back, but he sends him with an armed escort to go back to Israel to rebuild these walls. So you can see how the Lord's working in here, right? Because that doesn't make any sense. Empire is not going to naturally want you to go back and build up the walls that they themselves tore down, right? So the Lord is at play here, um, and he allows Nehemiah to go back. Nehemiah ends up coming back to the land, arrives there safely, and he goes around and he inspects the walls. Um, he goes out at night, and he sees for himself that these are a mess. It's like they're talking about the, the immovable amount of rubble around these walls. So not only are they burned down, but there's just rubble everywhere. You can imagine, you know, if you ever saw, it's maybe an extreme example, but uh, what's that? Uh, there's a movie series. It's based off a book. The one movie's called Mockingjay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is maybe an extreme example, but they get off the ship in uh, the one place where the Empire had just destroyed the place like with nuclear weapons, and it's just rubble everywhere, right? Just uh, You couldn't even imagine rebuilding because of the amount of rubble that you'd have to remove, right? So Nehemiah sees this for himself, and he sees that this is real. Like, these walls and these gates are destroyed. And so he begins to rally the people, says, The Lord has given me favor for us to rebuild these walls. And so the people start to rally, and they begin to, to engage the idea of rebuilding the walls. It's all part of this continued attempt at a revival, right? That the Lord is going to revive us to what we were before. And so they begin to build, and shortly after that, some of the people who had been living around that land, um, they came and they began to mock and, and the, you know, the efforts of rebuilding the wall. And you know, they said things like, are you really going to just disregard the king's desires. Meanwhile, the king had actually sent him back. They didn't know that, right? But they're mocking him, um, and we're going to get into some of this text in specific, but Nehemiah's uh, responds pretty sharply to that, and so then they kind of end up with some enemies that they're sort of afraid that the enemies are trying to disrupt the plans of rebuilding the wall. So it says they actually rebuilt the wall, this is crazy to me, with one hand uh, had like a tool to rebuild the wall, and one hand had a weapon in it, right? So they're they're rebuilding, and they're also trying to defend what they're rebuilding, right? 
Well, this goes on for a while, and actually, eventually, the wall does get rebuilt. So at the end of our portion of the text this morning, the wall and the gates have actually all been resurrected. Um, and in the meantime, Nehemiah is also, uh, he's also socially reforming some things, because something kind of arises as they're rebuilding this wall. The poor begin to cry out, um, and they begin to, to like ask for help, because basically... The rich were placing a tax on the poor for food during a famine, and so the poor had nothing, you know, they couldn't pay the tax, right? So they had to go in debt to even pay the tax. So now they owe the rich, and even to the point where some had to sell their children into slavery just to have food on the table. So this got really bad and really messy, and we can see how it doesn't take long for, like, whatever that is that exists in us apart from Jesus, you know, to come to the forefront, right? And, and take advantage of those that we can take advantage of. Anyhow, uh, this, this cry arises, and Nehemiah, in the middle of rebuilding this wall, he hears their report, he listens to the poor, and he's deeply moved by it and disturbed by it, and he actually calls out the rich. And he calls them out big time. And they actually respond, and they listen to him, and they, they rectify the situation. So, there's no longer a tax on their food, and they're able to have the poor able to keep their land, things like that, right? So even in the middle of the rebuilding the walls, he's also uh, reforming things uh, systemically and standing up for the poor. So we see some really good things from Nehemiah in our text. The thing that he had sent out to do to rebuild those walls was accomplished. It even says that once their enemies found out that the wall was built, uh, they were pretty afraid because they acknowledged that this would not have happened if their God wasn't on their side. Um, so that's where we're at in the story. And there's two texts this morning that we're going to focus on, kind of jumping a little bit um, further back in the story before some of those things I just mentioned. Um, yeah, so the first one is chapter 2, verse 17. It should be up on the screen. Yep. So then Nehemiah... Um, said to the people. So this is after he inspects the walls. He sees that they're burned down. And he comes to them and he says, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. So the first thing I just want to point out in this text um, is just that this, what this says about the mercy of God in their story and with us um, so there's something in the fact that the, that the, the city's been burned down and they've been taken into exile and now they've been allowed to return, but their city's still in, in shambles. There's something about that that is, it's full of disgrace, right? And if we look a little further back in the story, we see the reason they're even in exile in the first place, it was because they had turned their hearts from the Lord. There was disobedience in their heart, and there was actually what we're talking about, about giving all of our heart to the Lord. They were withholding it, and they were actually giving it elsewhere, right? And so the consequence for this was that their enemies overtook them, and they were taken into exile. So the whole reason that the cities even burned down, the whole reason that they had to come back from Babylon back to their land and have all of these issues, right? They don't have any walls around their city. That's not really a good thing, right? <laughs> Um, it's their own fault, basically. It's their own disobedience. So if we were to sit here and say that they deserve to have their walls rebuilt, we'd probably say they don't, right? 
they kind of like messed up. Well, there's something in the Lord's heart that sees them in their disgrace, right? He hears Ezra and his cry out to the Lord in grief because the walls of his city have been destroyed. There's something in the Lord that hears that, even though his people are facing the consequences for their own sin. There's something in him, there's something in the Lord that will still come down and find them in their disgrace and pull them out of that. And we see that in this text. What Nehemiah is repeating to the people is what he has gotten from the Lord, right? That they will rebuild the walls and they'll no longer be in disgrace. And there's just something in this for us that no matter where we are at, there's always this opportunity to say, like, where would I be? if not for your mercy, Lord. You know what I'm saying? We've all had our walls burned down because of our own sin. We've all lived in the consequence of sin. We've all experienced separation of God, from God, and our sin. And if we are followers of Jesus, then we can all confidently say that the Lord found us in our disgraced place, right? He found us in our barrenness, in our exile, in our, in, our, in our state of being burned down, he saw us there in our disgrace, and there was something in his heart that said, this one's mine. And he pulled us out of that mud and that mire, right? And he rebuilt our walls, even if they're in process of being rebuilt. If that's what it feels like, that's what he's doing, right? And there's nothing in me that can say, man, I was entitled to that. What I can say is, where would I be if not for your mercy and your grace, Lord? So there's something really good in the rebuilding of these walls. It says something about the mercy of God, that he sees us in that disgrace and he pulls us out and he will actually restore and give back to us the things that sin has taken away. Isn't that crazy? You'd think he might forgive us, but then that's kind of it. But he takes it a whole step further to say that I will actually restore to you the things that have been taken. I will restore the places that have been burned down because of sin, right? We believe this in our own life. We believe this in our neighborhoods, right? Maybe where systems and empire has stolen and taken away certain things, the Lord will restore those things because of his mercy and his grace. So we find ourselves in the story here, just in this place of thank you for your mercy, Lord, because it's there because it's consistent with his nature, and it's with us today because his mercy is consistent with his nature. And there is something to being able to read a story that took place thousands of years ago and to see that his character and his nature is coming forth in this text then. It comes forth in Jesus. It comes forth in the establishment of the new church. It comes forth in the word to speak of things that are to come. It comes forth today. There's something in his nature that's full of mercy, and we can take hope in that because it's not going to change. He wasn't merciful yesterday, and maybe his mercy will leave me today. He wasn't full of grace yesterday, and maybe his grace will depart from me today. His mercy is consistent with his nature. And the foundation of everything that we hold will always be on this love-filled mercy. It says, even while we were dead in our sin, Christ died for us. Even while we were dead in our sin, the Father couldn't turn his face away from us. He picked us up and pulled us out, and he is rebuilding our walls. 
Amen? The mercy of God pulls us out of our disgrace and our shame, and we get to live on that foundation of his mercy. You know, I mentioned that text earlier where Moses asked the Lord, I pray you, show me your glory. And I love that text because you can see the Lord's delight in the question. Like, he's, he doesn't hesitate. He's right away, he's like, I'm going to do it. Like, he's really delighted that Moses asked him this question because he wants to show us his glory. Anyway, he sets it up and he tells him the, the conditions. You can't look at my face. I'm going to pass by you. And as the Lord passed by him, he proclaimed, I am the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. So as his glory is passing by, the Lord could have said anything about himself. He could have said anything. But in this moment of revealing his glory to Moses, he declares himself to be merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. What that leads me to believe is this is what he's most like, proud of about himself. If he's revealing, this is one of the moments that we have in the text, in the, in the whole Bible. It's the only moment where God physically walks by a human being. So he's only done it once, and he only said one thing about himself, and that was it. So that means that that is a big deal to him. He takes pride in that. That that is a part of his nature that will never change. We serve a God, we live with a God who is merciful and gracious, who is slow to anger, who is abounding in steadfast and faithful love. Isn't that good? Oh, man. Yeah. The story of, the, of God and man it will always be about steadfast mercy and love. And we get to see it in this text this, day, uh, this morning. Okay. So that's the first thing. Now we're going to move on a few verses later, only three, to the same chapter, um, verse 20. So uh, the little in-between, I probably should just put the whole thing up, but um, Nehemiah says to the people, come, let's rebuild the walls. The Lord will find us in our disgrace, and, and so we will no longer be in that place. Let's rebuild these walls. Well, the people that I had said that had been living around and you know, questioning and, and mocking, they do this. And they're basically like, it's not, it's not going to happen. Are you seriously going to rebel against the king? So here's Nehemiah's response to him. I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Okay, so two things in this part of the text. So this is another one of those messy parts of this story where we see the leader who was Zerubbabel and then it was Ezra and now it's Nehemiah. We see them respond in a way that at first glance, it might seem like, oh, the Lord just told them to say that. Sometimes you can think that about the Bible, right? The Lord was just like this robot in the back, like shouting out the command, and then they just, without thinking, say it, right? But that's not true. The Lord's always interacting with our humanity in this text, right? There can be, there can be something in this that you might say, well, this must be from the Lord because it's in the Bible, right? It might not necessarily be true. We've already seen in, in multiple places in this story 
um, particularly last week with, with Ezra having sent away the wives and the children of the men who had married you know, foreign wives, and how that, this is something in the heart of God, right? Even in Ezra's attempt to, even in Ezra's attempt to achieve holiness for the Lord's sake, even as in, in his attempt to lead a revival, there's something in this that misses the heart of God, right? Well, we're in another one of those places here. Um, so Ezra says, the God of heaven will give us success. We will complete the buildings of this wall. But as for you, you will have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Now, off cuff, there's some things in this thing, in this command from him that might be somewhat true, right? Like the Lord will triumph over his enemies, right? And he has created this thing that is to be pure, right? And so there is a coming to the Lord in this way of like, we're in his family. But there is something in this that misses the heart of God. Um, you know, these people were offering mocks and, and retorts and things, but there's something in Nehemiah's response that I think goes a little beyond what God's heart is here. I don't think the Lord's interested in rubbing it in the faces of the people living around this area that they will have no share in the city and they'll have no right or historic claim to it, right? Like, there's something in that that goes a little beyond God's heart to maintain something that's pure and right. Um, And, you know, this text, it really leads me um, to this place earlier in the Old Testament that prophesies uh, about what the new city of the Lord is going to look like. And we're going to see how maybe this doesn't totally line up in it. Again, it's a leader who's pursuing revival. um, But even in that, we can see where there are places where maybe we go beyond what the Lord's heart is. Um, You know, there's a little me, little him, and and that's it really isn't what he's interested in. And maybe some of the conflict that they faced as they were building the walls, maybe some of that came from this statement, right? Like maybe some of that could have been avoided, right? Where they had to build with one tool in their hand and one weapon in the other. Maybe that wasn't quite as necessary, um, you know, as these words make it seem to be. Um, any event, uh, we're going to jump back to the prophet Zechariah. That's also up there in the text. So this is a prophet who, if you are familiar, prophets would hear, still do, hear the word of the Lord and release it to the people. So Zechariah, in the middle of what is a lengthy word from the Lord, says this. Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord. And I will be the glory in her midst. I'm going to keep reading. It's not on the, stay, uh, on the thing, but... Ho there, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have dispersed you as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. O Zion, escape, you who are living with the daughter of Babylon... For thus says the Lord of hosts, after glory he has sent me against the nations which plunder you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. That's crazy. For behold, I will wave my hand over them so that they will be plunder for their slaves. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. 
Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. Many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and will become my people. Then I will dwell in your midst and you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. The Lord will possess Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. So in this word, from a prophet who could only see in part, remember, this was before Jesus came, right? So he was only seeing in part, and he's delivering what the Lord says, makes some really radical and wonderful claims in this that speak to the idea that, yes, these walls are being rebuilt right now, but this is probably not what's happening in, in, in the people of Israel at this time, the rebuilding of the temple, the the reintroduction of the law, and the rebuilding of the walls. This is probably not the final act of the Lord. This is not the full picture, right? So even in what they're attempting to do and to create a, place, a, a moment of revival to the Lord, it's really still only in part because we see in this prophecy that there's something else coming, a new city coming, that, by the way, is going to be without walls, and by the way, is going to include the nations who are the apple of his eye, right? So we see something in this text from Nehemiah, though he is attempting to, com- like he wants to complete the word of the Lord and he feels some sort of like something toward the enemies, right? Like you aren't going to stop us. There's something in his words that don't completely capture the heart of the Lord because there's something of exclusion in it. And what we see in this text from Zechariah is that the heart of the Lord is for the nations, right? And the heart of the Lord is actually to have a city that doesn't have walls. What are these walls for? They're to protect you from the outside, right? It's not going to have those walls. (laughs) I will be a, a wall of fire all around, and I will be the glory in her midst. So what we're looking forward to is a city that is greater than the city that had been built here, right? The city that they were building, it was good, and it got rebuilt, but that wasn't the final picture. What we're actually looking ahead to is so much greater. What we're looking ahead to is the rebuilding of a city that will never be destroyed, a city that is a, actually a resting place for the nations to come and to gather at this table, right? The Lord, it says Jesus is he's, he's drawing all women, all men, all children to himself. So it's a city that is a gathering place for the nations, and it's a city without walls, It's a city, imagine, where the fire of God is actually its walls and the glory of God fills it. Even if we're going to, I'm going to give away a little bit next week. You're going to see this revival that they're attempting doesn't exactly land and end up the way that these men had hoped. There's a lot of disappointment in it, a lot of questions it leaves. But what if it even had happened exactly as they had hoped? What if the temple had been built and the glory of God did come and fill it like he had in previous time? 
And what if Ezra had reintroduced the law and all the people followed it perfectly? They didn't, they didn't marry where they weren't supposed to marry. They didn't break the rules. And what if, like, Nehemiah had resurrected these walls and they didn't have the threat of enemies? Like, what if everything they were attempting to do had been, like, had happened? Even in that, it's not the full picture, right? We aren't looking for a city where there's a building, a temple, where the Lord's presence only dwells there and only the high priest can go in once a year to offer sacrifices. We aren't looking, through Jesus, we aren't looking to just live in this place that the law is our connection to the Lord. Jesus became the fulfillment of the law, right? And we aren't looking to live in a city where we build a wall to keep our enemies on the outside. We want a city where the fire of the Lord goes around us and his glory fills it. So even in this, we see it is good. There's honestly things in this that is good. But man, it's only part of the full picture of Jesus. And so I think what this story is supposed to leave us is not to just, tis, 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 you should have done it better. Not to just herald their leadership as, you know, this is how we ought to model ours. I think it's supposed to make us say, this is good, but God, I want more. It's supposed to leave us longing for that new city that's coming. And yet, by the way, he's building now, right? So where do we come into this thing? The things that we are building, the ways that we are looking to rebuild the things that have been torn down, the walls that have been torn down, the places that we are sowing in the kingdom, right? The places that we are showing his love to the poor, the places that we are, that where we are going low, like where Jesus went because we want more. Like in that, like we're looking ahead to what he is building through us, right? But at the end of the day, it's not going to be the gospel tab. It's not going to be the greenhouse network. It's not going to be aliquippa impact. It's not going to be all the things that he's leading us to step into missionally. What we're actually building toward is this eternal city. When Jesus comes back, right, and he establishes this place, this, we're talking, I'm talking about a resting place, right? Like, even that is only part of it. Like, I want to worship and I want to pray. I want to create a place for the Lord to come now, right? Even to experience an ounce of his glory. But that's not the full picture. I'm looking forward to a day where his glory is going to fill the whole thing. You know, it says in Revelation, there isn't even going to be a sun in that new city because his glory is going to illuminate the whole thing. He is going to be the light. I don't even know how that makes sense. But even the sun is just a partial picture of what is coming. His glory is going to fill it all. And so the story leaves us, yes, thank you, Lord, and... As we say when we take communion, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Doesn't it make you long for that new city? To be in the fullness of his presence, right? Where his glory might pass by Moses, but we can only see the backside, y'all. We're going to get to see the full thing. We're going to get to see the real Jesus and all his glory and splendor and wonder. All the things that David cried out for. This one thing do I ask for. Only this I seek. To dwell in your house forever. To gaze on your beauty. We're going to get to do that in fullness. And so if I can just leave us with 
those, I think, two things. Let this make you long for what's coming. Like, let an ache rise up in your bones for what's coming. Like, let that be the only thing that we're after, right? And the second thing is, let that drive you to sow and sow and sow and sow, right? If that's what we're looking forward to, if that's what we're going after, and we want the nations there, we want the people in our neighborhood there, then experience him and then let it cause you to sow. Keep sowing, keep sowing, keep sowing. Right? Keep rebuilding those walls. Those walls might not make it when, like, what you're building now is not going to maybe be a part of the story of eternity, but, like, the heart of what you're building will. You know what I'm saying? Like, those walls that they built, I don't think they're still standing. I don't really know, but they're not going to when Jesus comes back. But those walls meant something at that time. Keep sowing and keep building, right? We're a family on mission, but let's keep sowing in light of this new city that is coming. That's it.